Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, I mentioned in the welcome that Denny uh, spoke during Berea. So Denny Bruin, one of our missionaries from Berlin, he's in the back. Wave your hand one more time. He's got the white shirt on, easy to spot. Uh, he, he's shared about their work in Berlin this morning during Berea. So please visit him afterwards, say hello, introduce yourself. And if you weren't able to be there this morning to hear about it, uh, ask him to share a little bit. Reader's Digest version after the service. All right, let's go before God in prayer together. God, would you please set all of our faculties, our, our thinking and our feeling, would you set them on the text here this morning as, as we work through it? Help us to think rightly and feel deeply the truths that are here in such a way that as we leave this morning, we are able to orient ourselves with greater clarity and, and greater greater steadiness in the truths of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Proper God-exalting feelings find their roots in powerful God-revealed truths. So when I preached the Psalms in the past, and as I preached the, my 11th sermon here out of the Psalms, this is my prayer for you, my prayer for me, that this one reality, the one truth that you take away from these sermons is that, that proper God-exalting feelings, that is, our affections, our emotions, what we feel in our hearts, find their roots in powerful God-revealed truths. To be human is to have emotions. That is, that's a central mark of being made in the image of God. We, we feel a wide array of emotions. Some, some of you experience quite a bit of emotions. Some of you, not as much. But you do feel. You experience them in a response to what, what you think or what you say or what you, what you do. The glorious beauty of the Psalms is that what God gave us in this book is 150 songs that help us root the surge of our emotions in the bedrock of, of God's truth. So, Psalm 2, which we just read through, has emotional language in it. I wonder if you caught the words that describe the types of emotions going on in this, in this song. Rage, laughter, fury, fear, rejoicing, trembling, different kinds of emotions fill the psalm book. These are, these are songs, after all. They're meant to help us feel rightly. And right emotions are anchored 
should are anchored in right thinking. And right thinking is rooted in the bedrock of God's Word. So that's that's my aim with each of these psalms that I preach through, that it that it's the way it shapes the way I, I write the sermon. And so my prayer and hope and longing for us is that we would have God exalting feelings that are rooted in God revealed truths. When your thinking is rooted in the truth, your feelings overflow in a response to that truth. And God is seen as more seen more clearly and more gloriously. And, and that's why the gift of the Psalms are here in the Bible. So this morning we're going to look at Psalm 2. Uh, back in 2018, I preached on Psalm 1 and gave the, the over, kind of a general overview of the Psalter as a whole. But Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are, have been described as, as gateways into the rest of the psalm book. What you see in these two psalms lays the groundwork for the, the other 148 other psalms in the book. Psalm 1 talks about God, God's people delighting in his law. Whereas Psalm 2, we're going to see that God's enemies despise his law. We see examples in these two chapters of the righteous and the wicked and what emotions they have as the righteous and the wicked. God's people delight in his law, but God's enemies rebel against it. So in the, in the, the first, there's the, all 150 psalms are broken up into five different sections, and this Psalm, Psalm 2, is found in the first section, which is composed of chapters 1 through 41. And all of these 41 songs in the first section of the psalm book are almost all written by David. And they're an example of what Psalm 1 declares at the very beginning. They are prayers from David in times of distress as he's pouring his heart out to God, and he writes statements of confidence he has in God. So he's seeking to delight his heart in God's law. His distress many times comes at the hands of those who are doing evil against him, which you can see in the very next psalm, Psalm 3. But Psalm 2, what we're looking at, is going to be, is split up into four sections. So there's four sections in the psalm. If you, it's not broken up into sections in this slide, but if you open up your, your Bible, you probably will see four sections. And each section in Psalm 2 has three verses to it. So we're going to work our way through it and see what's happening through the perspective of David's time and place in, in history when he wrote it. But we're not going to stop there because the Bible doesn't stop there, and we're going to continue peeling back these layers. I think there's three layers in, in Psalm 2 that we're going to see that's going to lead us into the New Testament towards the end. But for now, let's look at verses 1 through 3, which we're going to see the rebellious nation's perspective. So we're looking at this now in these first three verses through what do the rebellious people, the rebellious rulers, the rebellious nations have? Why do they want to rebel? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, so saying collectively, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So let's ask the first question from these three verses. Who is the Lord's anointed and who is, is writing this psalm? And that answer can be found in Acts 4, which identifies David as the author of, of this psalm. So David is the Lord's anointed whom God has chosen, he's set up, he's anointed to be the king over Israel. And the word anointed means Messiah in Hebrew. God has chosen to show his salvation and his steadfast love through his anointed king, David. And this 
goes all the way back to Genesis 12. And Abraham, when God promised to Abraham that through his lineage, through Abraham's family tree, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then in 2 Samuel 7, when God established his covenant with David, God told David that after he died, he was going to make his son, he was going to bring his son as a child of God. And he would discipline David's son when he sins. He would show him steadfast love and David's kingdom. So the promise God gave to David in this covenant was that David's kingdom and David's throne would be established forever. So what we're seeing from Genesis 2 to 2 Samuel 7 and here in Psalm 2, we see that what God has set up is that it is through Israel and through his king that the nations would see, receive a blessing from the descendants of Abraham. So God established David as king, said through his family's succession, God's fame and God's glory would be displayed. But what is the nation's response that's going on here in Psalm 2? The neighboring nations, the kings, the rulers, the peoples, they don't, they don't have that perspective. They don't see it that way. What God is offering, what God wanted to offer to them as a blessing, they see as bonds. What should have been a glorious comfort to the nations, they saw as cords that constrained them, that kept them from doing what they wanted to do. These surrounding nations, they do not want to submit to David's rule. They don't want to submit to taxes or the limitations that they feel this submission would bring or having to obey another nation's commands. They didn't want to submit to David's kingdom. They did not want to submit to David's God. They wanted to break away from it, to burst their bonds. These rebellious people have set themselves up not only against David, but and infinitely more important than setting themselves up against David, they set themselves up against God. They're drawing this, this line in the sand saying, we will not submit to the Lord and to his anointed. So for them to rebel against David was to rebel against God. They were cutting themselves off from the hope of knowing who the true God was because they desired to be their own gods. What was offered to them as blessing and hope was seen as constraint, seen as slavery. They're now making plans for how they're going to escape David's rule. So that's verses 1 through 3, the rebellious nation's perspective. Now in verses 4 through 6, the second section of Psalm 2, we see what the heavenly perspective is in response to the rebellious perspective. So the emotions of the ungodly nations, they're, they're bubbling over in wrath and fury against God and his anointed. And we're going to see what is the response of God. Will, is God worried? Is God fearful about these rebellious nations gathering this cohort to rebel against his anointed, his king? Will the plotting and scheming and planning of the wicked overthrow the covenant that God set up with Abraham and with David? Well, we know resoundingly the answer to those questions is no. What God's response isn't fear or worry. God's response is laughter. He who sits, this is verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God does not feel threatened by rebellious nations any more than an adult man feels threatened by a four-year-old boy's challenge to an arm wrestling contest. And not only does God laugh, but he holds them in derision, which means he makes a mockery of these rebellious nations' perspective. It's like the adult saying, you really think, it's like the adult saying to this four-year-old boy, you really think you're going to beat me with that toothpick arm that's connected to your shoulder? Like, it's not going to even be a contest. 
So you would do your soul well to spend some time considering the fact that God laughs at the plans of the wicked. He makes a mockery of them from his throne in the heavens. Press that reality, that truth, up against the daily news that you see of what evils are going on in our country and across the world. Like seriously, press the reality of these three verses, verses 4 through 6, against what you will see this week in the headlines across the world. In 2010, I went to uh, Haiti after an earthquake just decimated that country. Thousands dead. I saw pain and suffering on a scale. We, we have no I, we have no concept of what it's like to experience that pain and suffering, what they're going through. Uh, so I was there, and I spent a week doing some relief efforts, and we had these Haitian interpreters that were working with us to help us go throughout the, country, throughout the area that we were in. Uh, and one of these interpreters uh, I've stayed in touch with over these last uh, 12 years. And, and recently he's been messaging me, uh, telling me about the gangs that have overthrown this government. So if you haven't seen, the, it hasn't been all over the news, but if there's been some things. There's just an insurgence of gang violence going on that's been a response to a very, very corrupt government. And these these gangs are just steamrolling through villages, destroying Innocent people killing innocent people and taking whatever they can for their own selves. Food and water are scarce. Things are dark and bleak uh, for him. And as I'm talking to him, he's talking about how he's just trying to squeak out existence and provide enough food for his mom and his sister, just trying to figure out how they're going to survive. So when I'm talking to him, now, hearing him describe these atrocities that are the result of this gang violence, I hear him describe what's going on. I hear him. I see that wicked men are causing pain to so many. And what I'm thinking of is Psalm 2. God's response to this wickedness is laughter at their puny, weak rebellious, rebelliousness. He holds them in mockery, and one day they will stand before God in full fury and full wrath stored up to them, stored up for them because of their wickedness, should they never humble themselves and repent. God's laughter is a wrathful, furious one. It is not a funny one, and it's directed at the rebellious nations. Verse 5 says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God will speak to them in his wrath and terrify these rebellious nations in his fury. Nations that furiously were plotting against God's anointed and coming up with these schemes and plans of how they were going to rebel, sitting, planning mockery against God. God's response to them is wrath and fury. And now they're terrified. So their spitball attempts at angry rebellion will be met by the full full hurricane force of God's judgment. So I know some of you kids tend to like, you might uh, taking notes, you'll draw a picture because I've seen some of them. You draw pictures of the of the sermon, an illustration of the sermon that stands out to you. Pastor Dave has a couple of them in his office. If you want to, you could draw a picture of a hurricane and point an arrow to it and say God, and then a stick figure blowing a spitball at a hurricane, and then you could put rebellious nation or sinful man. That's the attempt at us to try to rebel against God or the nations and the rulers to rebel against God. You're not going to do it. God's plans are going to happen. You can't stop God's plans any more than you can stop a hurricane with a spitball. 
God declares to them in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God has set his king on Zion. If you start reading through the Psalms, you're going to see the word Zion used often. Zion refers to a Canaanite city that was built in in Mount Moriah, or a Canaanite city built on Mount Moriah that David conquered, which became known as Jerusalem. Zion was the word used to describe the area on this mount in Jerusalem where the temple stood. So God's dwelling place is referred to as Zion, where the Lord sits enthroned is referred to as Zion. It's the place where salvation for all Israel comes from. It's the place where it's beautiful in its elevation, and it's the joy of the earth. These are things to describe Zion. It's the place where the perfection of beauty comes from as God shines forth out of it. So God has set apart David as his king to show forth his power and glory from his dwelling place in Zion. So God's enemies get fury and wrath, and it's through God's king that he establishes salvation and joy and his glory to be made known. So that's the heavenly perspective in verses 4 through 6. Now we're going to look at this this third section, verses 7 through 9, the perspective of the Lord to his son. So what is the relationship? We've been talking about the Lord and his anointed, that means God and King David. What is this relationship that's going on between these two? We've seen how the rebellious nations view God in verses 1 through 3. Then we saw how God viewed these rebellious nations. Now we're going to see how David views the Lord and how the Lord views him in return. We see the relationship between the Lord and the king of Israel. So look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. So this is David recounting, thinking back. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. What, What did the Lord tell David? You are my son. So by David recounting this decree, he may be referring back to, some commentators think he's referring back to the time when he was coronated, when he became king over Israel. The relationship between God and David is not merely the same as any other type of king over any other nation at that time. But the relationship between David and God was this warm family type description. David holds a certain status before God as a son to a father. And God promised David that his son would enjoy this same relationship. And even further, David is is representing the same type of relationship that God had with all of Israel. So it's not just David, it is all of Israel. In Psalm 80, 15, and Exodus 4, 22 and 23, God calls all of Israel as his son. So what David is, is this representative of Israel, visible representative of Israel as God's child for all the world surrounding him to see. But all of Israel is considered to be the child of God. So at David's coronation, he is begotten. He became the leading, visible leader of God's fatherly relationship with his child Israel. So because of this special relationship, this covenant that God established, that he set up starting all the way back in Genesis 12, I'm talking about Abraham when it was promised to Abraham and his lineage. God reiterates this promise to David. The promise to Abraham that was through his bloodline, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Look at verse 
8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God's reiterating this promise to David, saying that the nations would be a possession and a heritage to them. And then finally, in verse 9 in this section, we it says that if the rebellious kings attempt to burst or te- uh, cast away Israel's rule, God's response is that he's going to break them with a rod of iron and shatter them into pieces like a broken pot falling on the floor. That's the end result of their rebellion. So what we have seen so far as we're working through this up to verse 9 now, what we have seen so far is that God made a covenant with Israel as his child, the king, and the king, that is David, was this visible representative of that covenant. And any attempt to rebel against their rule was a rebellion against God. So now they have two options. The rebellious have two options. In verses 10 through 12, this last section, they're confront, when confronted with the perspective of earthly rebellion or heavenly submission, God's king, his son, gives the rebellious nations a warning. They do two things, submit to God or face the wrath of God. Look at verse 11. David warns them, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So serve with fear and rejoice with trembling. These nations ought to have fear and trembling over their wickedness and rebellion against an all-knowing, all-powerful God who can do all that he wills. The warning is that though these nations see themselves as this strong force to be reckoned with, so their view is, don't mess with us. We can rebel against God's anointed. They are but a shaky pot that can be just shoved off the table by God and broken into a thousand pieces. That reality ought to cause fear and trembling in their souls, and it ought to move them to serve God and take delight in the mercy that's being offered to them. These nations are facing the potential of an expanding rule and control by David and his offspring, and it is for their good. So what they're seeing as constraining is really offered to them as goodness through God. It is through Israel and God that God intends to show his blessing to the nations and make the fame of his name known. So what David's doing in, in, in all of Psalm 2 here is declaring in song to the nations and peoples and kings, don't run from God. Take refuge in him. You will be blessed. You will not be cursed. What you see as slavery will actually be your salvation. What you see as bonds will really be your blessing. The psalm closes out in verse 12 saying that the nations should kiss the Son, which means that is that they are to honor and submit to God's chosen Son, God's King, David. For as the nations submit to David, who is acting in God's name and under his authority, God's Son, they are submitting to God. So that's Psalm 2, it's four different sections. We've seen that God bestowed on Israel and her kings the mission of displaying to the nations God's glory and his blessings to all those who would submit. But if you continue reading in Psalm 3 and the rest of the prophets, you can see it didn't happen that way. They failed, the kings of Israel failed in the mission that God had given them to display God's glory. We only have to read 
the very next Psalm, Psalm 3, to see how David's enemies rose against him. And then we can see repeated failures and sins of David and David's sons turning from the Lord and the covenant that he established with them. They failed to do Psalm 1. They failed to meditate on God's law day and night and root their desires and feelings in the laws of God. Rather, they allowed their sin to be carried they allowed their sin to carry their desires away from God and became like the nations around them. So that this opposite effect is happening. Instead of acting as the children of God that they were called to be, they began acting like the nations around them. But the good news is that's not where the story ends. So what we're going to start doing now is peeling back the layers of Psalm 2 and see two more things that we can find in the New Testament that give more light that David couldn't see at the time of writing this song. At the time of Psalm 2 being written, David and Israel could not fully understand the plans of God that this very psalm points to. The story unfolds through the prophets in the Old Testament, and it comes to a climax in the New Testament, which the New Testament quotes Psalm uh, 2 18 times in, in various places. And it comes to a climax with the better and perfect David. That is Jesus Christ. So what we see in the New Testament is Jesus descended from David's family line. Jesus descended from David's family line and is the son of God who is resurrected from the dead. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, promising a Messiah who would come to save them. The Messiah that conquered death by rising from the dead. So now Jesus, because of that, is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. King Jesus rose from the dead, whom God the Father declared to be his son, and is reigning and ruling from his heavenly throne this very second. So the better David, that is Jesus Christ, came to earth as a man. He conquered through his death and resurrection and was coronated through his resurrection as God's established king over all the world. Where David failed, Jesus succeeded as the sinless Messiah. So now what is offered to the nations and to all peoples and rulers is salvation through Jesus Christ. If anyone would kiss the Son, they are offered salvation. If they would give honor and homage and worship to the Son and repent of their sins. Blessed are those who take refuge in the Son, Jesus Christ. And at that appointed time, Jesus will return as he declared in Revelation 19. So the heavens are going to be opened. And the one who is called faithful and true will judge and make war in righteousness. And from his mouth will come a sharp sword to strike down the rebellious nations once and for all, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we, as, his, as God's children, will rule with Jesus Christ. So that's the hope and the scope of the reign of Jesus Christ. God promised, so this is the entire sermon in a paragraph. God promised to Abraham that the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. God established Israel and Israel's king to be a beacon of light by which the nations would see the glory of God and be drawn into it. Psalm 2 and other prophecies in the Old Testament were pointing to a Messiah who would fulfill the promise of, to Abraham. And Jesus Christ came and conquered and was coronated as the kingly Messiah. And the story will end when he returns to bring all things into submission and final judgment under his rule. 
So what the Bible is, is this grand unfolding drama of redemption. So what do we do in light of all of this? What are we to do with these truths? What I, I read Psalm 2. I see that David's the pointer towards the better and perfect Jesus Christ who came, conquered, and was coronated. What does that have to do? How does that come to bear now in our daily lives as we walk out of here in a few minutes? How should we then live? How should we feel in response to the truths that we've read? Psalm 2 is brought to bear in the book of Acts. It is a story that is incredibly helpful to sync up powerful God-revealed truths with proper God-exalting feelings. So I'm going to quickly go through this story in Acts and the truths that are shown in Psalm 2. And I hope that these two coming together will cause your mind and your heart to sync up with great truth and great emotions. In Acts 4, Peter and John were teaching the people in the temple and the religious authorities were watching on. So Peter and John, apostles, they're teaching in the temple. They're teaching people that are eager to learn and many come to faith in Christ, but they're also being watched by the religious authorities who do not like what they're preaching because it is rebellious to their perceived authority that they have. They were proclaiming and heralding the resurrection of Peter and John were proclaiming, teaching, heralding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were telling the people that King Jesus conquered death. He's right now he's enthroned in heaven. He's in control. And because of their message, the message that Peter and John gave, the gospel that was proclaimed, many came to faith in Christ, but they also resulted in getting arrested and held in jail overnight by the authorities. The next day, Peter and John stood before these rulers and authorities, these, these learned scholars, these religious leaders, rulers with authority. They had real authority to arrest people and put them in jail. And Peter and John again proclaimed before them that there is no salvation except through Jesus Christ. And the reaction that these authorities had to these two men was astonishment. They perceived them, and they were, Peter and John were uneducated, common men. But Acts 4 says it was obvious that they had been with Jesus. The rulers did not know what to do with these men except threaten them and tell them not to speak about Jesus anymore. And Peter and John replied by saying that they couldn't help themselves but speak of Jesus. After they were released, they went to their friends, so these other Christians, so they get out of jail, they join up with the other brothers and sisters in Christ and tell them what happened. And what was their response? They lifted up their voices together. So Acts 4 talks about how when Peter and John get out of jail, they, they come back and join with the other Christians. And together in one voice, they say, this is Acts 4, verses 24 through 28. Together they're saying, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's Plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Did a couple of verses in there sound familiar? Because they were quoting Psalm 2. 
They were taking Psalm 2 and applying it to their situation. Again, I'll read it one more time. They raised their voice together, saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, by the Holy Spirit. And then they quote Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Only this time, the anointed is Jesus Christ. Kings and rulers and rebellious nations of Psalm 2 are now referred to as Herod and Pontius Pilate. And the Gentiles and the people of Israel who planned and schemed and plotted and put Jesus, the better David, to death. This was the plan of God from the very beginning of time. God predestined wicked people to put to death his sinless son. As they said, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God planned for Jesus to come as the perfect man, to conquer death through the cross and the empty tomb, to receive his kingly coronation and resurrection is now seated at the right hand of God as King Jesus. And it is this good news and this gospel that we now proclaim to all the world. It's why we support workers to be sent out, because the gospel is good news worth everybody in the world knowing. All the peoples of the world might hump that all the peoples might in the world might humbly serve and rejoice with trembling in the salvation of God's anointed, in the salvation of Jesus Christ. This is, should be such good news that it blows away all of our doom and gloom of our present day, just, just blows it out of the water. May we, Grace Church, be like Christians of Acts 4. May our hearts be firmly planted near the rivers of God's word, meditating on them day and night, so that our delight is in Jesus. And then, out of this overflow of delight, may our lives be a reflection of Jesus, so that others can know And they've been with Jesus. They've been drinking at the waters of our kingly Savior Shepherd, their kingly Savior Shepherd, Jesus. Grace Church, may our lives be marked not by the politics that we hold to, but by the Savior that we worship. And that that is not to say that the political arena is not important. I'm not not saying that. They have their place and there are battles to fight in that arena. I am saying that our lives as Christians ought to mainly, primarily, and mostly need to be marked by our love for Jesus Christ and our obedience to his commands. May our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members see Jesus when they see us and be drawn into the hope that they too can also have Jesus. May your perspective of what is happening What's going on in our current day, whether it be in our state or in our country or across the world, be shaped not mainly by cable news opinions or hot take tweets or or even uh, thoughtful podcasts and articles. May you be primarily, hear hear the words that I wrote this very carefully, may you be primarily, deeply, and profoundly shaped by pondering and meditating on God's word in such a way that it changes you down to the very core of what you think and how you feel. If God laughs at the spitball-type rebellions of the godless in Psalm 2, and if he predestines the wicked people who killed Jesus to lead to the greatest news in human history, ought we not to be the happiest people in the worst of times? And I do not mean... 
And when I say happy, I don't mean superficial, fake smile on your face, pretending everything was okay, happy. That's not what I mean. I mean a type of people that are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The type of people that say the best is yet to come. The type of people who are serious and joyful. The type of people that are sober-minded and rejoicing. Before I close with with one last paragraph, here's a really practical way this week that you can fight for this to happen in your soul. This is true for, this could be true for any point in your weekly routine, but it could especially be true and helpful to you on, on Tuesday during the election. Take the songs that we're singing here this morning, because they're picked to be songs in relation to Psalm 2 to reflect the truths of Psalm 2. Take the songs that we're singing today and put them into a playlist on your phone. And listen to them on a loop as you ponder the words in your mind. And as the songs are playing, ask God, God, would you please help me feel the truths that are in these songs? And you pray them back to God. Be like the tree in Psalm 1 that soaks up scripture that is found in the lyrics that we sing. Any personal crisis you are going through or any crisis playing out on a local or a national or a world stage should be seen by us as as God's people, as the overarching story that is seen throughout the Bible. We are living the story of a grand unfolding drama of redemption. Jesus came and he conquered and was coronated as king over all the world. And the hope that we have is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father.